and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I'm so happy to be back with you with another week of soothing screams and calming creeps. I hope you're having a wonderful week. Can you do me a favor real quick? Relax your shoulders. Ah, isn't that better? Why don't you unclench your jaw while you're at it? Awesome. Now we can begin. We have some pretty classic style tales this week, some iconic monsters reworked by this week's authors to be horrifically intriguing. The first story is by an author you'll recognize because he wrote Bumper, the highly discussed story from the episode titled Mutilated Racists. (laughs) You remember the one. And if you don't, I recommend going back and and listening to that one. Read the trigger warnings first, please. So this is a new one by Ben Schleter, and it's called Burn. I stood watching as the screams began. I stood watching as the screams faded. I watched as hair singed and burnt, blistered flesh sloughed off bone and sizzled to a crisp in glowing embers. I watched as her eyeballs melted and boiling blood inner liquid and brain matter spewed from empty black sockets. I had to watch until the end. My mind was screaming at me to look away, to run, but my body wouldn't listen. As much as I tried, I could not move a muscle. Something forced me to watch as the fire smoldered and the grave diggers came with their shovels. They buried Eliza in a shallow, unmarked grave in unconsecrated ground. Everyone knows you bury a witch in unconsecrated soil. Holy soil won't do for the minions of Satan. A witch? Yes, a witch. That's what she was. Well, that's what the priests and villagers claimed. I knew better. I should have spoke up, but they would have burned me too. What would John and the kids do without me? John can't raise four young ones on his own. He's got to work so we can eat. Peter is just a baby, and Emma isn't old enough to take care of her siblings. I should have spoke up, but I didn't. And for that, I have sealed my fate. Eliza was a kind old lady. Sure, she was a little different and kept to herself, 
but she was kind to me. She wasn't married, never was, and didn't have no children. She lived at the edge of town, by the river. She hunted, gardened, and foraged for her food. Now and then, on rare occasions, she came to the village to barter for this or that. But mostly, she kept to herself. Her behavior never seemed odd to me. But many folks spoke ill of her, and rumors spread like wildfire. We are a small village, and everyone knows each other from church and town meetings. Eliza never attended either, but I never thought much of it. Then, last fall, things in the village started to sour. The blacksmith shop burned to the ground. Mr. Harrison's cows got sick and died, and blight ruined much of the fall harvest. Folks looked to blame someone, and unfortunately, Eliza was the one they pointed fingers at. Eliza was suspected of witchcraft and thrown in prison. The prison is a small stone building behind the church. It has a dirt floor, chains hanging from rings in the wall, and a wooden chamber pot. There isn't a hearth or even a torch for light or warmth. The cold and stench are enough to drive anyone to the brink of madness. The hearings took place three days after Eliza was thrown in that hellhole. All the witnesses told tales of Eliza's strange behavior and accounts of dark practices being performed in the woods behind her house. They were all lies. They knew it, and so did I. Being one of the few folks that ever spoke with Eliza, I was called to testify. Eliza sat, hands and legs bound by chains, in front of the priests. She looked at me, pleadingly, before I began. But soon lowered her head as I too told lies about her lies about her strange satanic activities that I had personally witnessed after the eyewitness testimonies five more days in that cell and torture Eliza broke down and confessed to witchcraft she was sentenced to death by fire. I suppose she knew that there was no use fighting. She didn't put up a fuss when they chained her to the wooden pole. She didn't say a word when they lit pyre. She just stared at me and the other townsfolk with hate in her eyes. She looked directly at me for several moments until the flames started to lick at her feet and lower legs. She screamed in an unearthly, high-pitched, ear-piercing shriek until the pain was too much. And she closed her eyes for good. The next few weeks came and went. 
Nothing changed. The blacksmith still didn't have a shop. Mr. Harrison's cows were still dead, and the harvest was still blight-ridden. The priests ordered that Eliza's home be burned to the ground. The overbearing feeling of guilt hasn't left me. I weep every day, thinking about what I have done. If I spoke up, I wouldn't be telling this tale now. But my... My darling family would still be alive. They wouldn't have suffered their horrible fates, and I wouldn't be living in this hell on earth. John was the first to die. I awoke one night with a start. I felt as if I was paralyzed. I could not physically move, but I was consciously aware of everything around me. John was fast asleep beside me, breathing peacefully. I tried to get out of bed, but my limbs would not listen. Moonlight streamed through the windows, and shadows danced upon the walls. I felt as if a weight lay upon my chest, and a deep sense of dread loomed. whispered a voice from inside my head. My world went black for a mere moment, and when light returned, it was moonlight. I was outside in a small clearing surrounded by deep, dark forest. I was at a location I did not recognize. I was disoriented and realized that once again I had no physical control of my body. I tried with everything I had to wake from what could only be a nightmare, but to no avail. I was not in control. John was in front of me. He was naked. His arms and legs were bound to a wooden pole. And the beginnings of a large fire lay at his feet. He looked at me and screamed for help over and over, but I had no command of my physical self. I wanted to vomit, but I couldn't even do that. The voice spoke to me then, in my mind. It told me to go forward and mark the sinner. I had no sway, no way to break whatever spell had been placed on me. I raised my hands and realized that in one hand I was clutching a large knife, and in the other I held a flickering black candle. I walked forward towards John, who continued to scream, begging for me to stop. I raised the knife to John's chest and deeply carved a jagged line from his Adam's apple to his navel. I wanted to save John and run away, but I could do nothing. Blood poured down John's naked, shivering body and dripped in a steady stream 
onto the logs beneath his feet. Then, to my utter horror, I bent down and lit the pyre. When John was no longer recognizable, and his charred, bubbling corpse lay limp among the flames, I awoke once again in my bed. I looked next to me with hope that it was all a nightmare. But John was gone. My husband, the father of my children, the love of my life, was gone. And I was the killer. I burned Emma the next night. And Thomas the night after that. I watched helplessly while my babies melted. Their screams of horror and pain pierced my very soul. Each night I awoke back in bed, knowing that it was real and knowing that there wasn't a damn thing I could do about it. The next day, Peter asked again where everyone was and again. I lied. I knew there was nothing I could do to stop the inevitable. Peter was three years old. Three fucking years old. All I could do was comfort him and assure him everyone would return and all would be right. Killing Peter was the worst of all. His confusion made it so much more insufferable. The others knew that something was wrong. They knew I was not myself. They screamed at me to stop and pleaded for their lives. Peter was just bewildered. His expression said that if Mommy was there, everything would be okay. He only started to scream and cry when the knife sliced his soft, pale flesh. I wanted to die. I wanted to plunge the knife deep into my own throat. I wished to take his place on that fire. But all I could do was stare. I died last night. There is nothing left to live for. I am nothing. All I can do is cry and wait. Will I somehow watch myself burn? I cannot say. But any death would be a welcome escape. I do not know how long it has been since I murdered my baby boy. Time has lost meaning to me. I wish. No. Beg for death every second of every day. 
I stopped eating and drinking days ago. Hopefully my body will give up soon. Each night, when my body will no longer allow me to stay awake, I see them all. I relive every macabre moment of each of their gruesome deaths. I realize my mistake now. I underestimated Eliza. I thought she was just a lonely, shy old lady. I was dead wrong. Not only was Eliza a real witch, she was a powerful one. As much as I suffer every moment of every day, I do take solace thing. I know that I will soon burn too. Our last story of the evening is by a new author to the show, Zachary Brooks. Zachary has for us tonight, The Nurse of the Countryside. aftermath of World War II swept through Europe and Asia, leaving only death and destruction in its wake. It was tragic. Dead remains of soldiers, women, and children covered the earth. Every street corner I turned was home to the withered bodies of innocent bystanders. I felt like I was looking into the eyes of the devil himself. Rachel? A voice exclaimed with a heavy English accent. It took me a minute to adjust to the dense smog that covered the town, but I eventually found the origin of the deep-chested voice. We are surprised to have an American in our midst, the British man said. The roads, sidewalks, and streets were cracked and blood-stained. It looked as if an earthquake had swept through the town and wreaked its god-forsaken havoc amongst the people. It was nothing more than a nightmare, I thought. But this nightmare had become a reality. I'm truly sorry, I shouted back. The sound of my own voice echoed off the ruined buildings and spooked me. I... I wish... I wish it was under better conditions. I wheezed through the thick, chemical-filled air. Where are the survivors? I asked. The British man approached me, and now that I could see him more clearly, I realized that his voice did not match his physical description. The man's voice was deep and raspy. 
reminded me of a threatening mafia boss. But in reality, he was short, fat, and had the biggest smile. Smile? How could anyone smile when surrounded by so much death and dismay? Uh, the survivors are out in the countryside, in a safe house, the man explained. He spoke slowly when he said this, as if he was carefully considering the words in his mind before he spoke them aloud. Uh, the house is not complete rubbish, but the Marshall Plan has you stationed there for the next six weeks. Yes, the Marshall Plan. The reason on which I was here. I had been employed by the United States government to help the local survivors. I was a nurse, of sorts, and I was told that my professional expertise could be of some help. Some people found my profession to be rather unorthodox, but I didn't care. I was helping people, and that is all that mattered. <laughs> Thank you. I choked. I rubbed my neck with my hands. My throat tingled so bad that it almost burned. The air is a bit thick, don't you think? The man did not answer. Instead, he smiled his stupidly blissful smile and led me down to the street corner. The war is over, the man finally said. Be happy, Rachel. What is your name? I asked. I paid no attention to what he said because I found no reason to be happy. Everyone was dead. The economy had crashed. And my country had just sent Europe over $15 billion to help rebuild their entire world. There was nothing to be happy about. The Marshall Plan had just been set in motion a week ago. There was no noticeable change to be seen in the streets. How could I be happy when everyone was suffering? <laughs> the name's Ramses, he chuckled. What a peculiar name, I thought. Ramses was an Egyptian name, not a European one. Who was I to judge? I was led to a black automobile, and we quickly got inside. The engine made rather odd noises as we drove along the road, and the entire car shook vigorously. We drove for hours, but the dense, foggy sky was still the same tinted shade of grayish-orange so I could barely tell any time had passed at all. The safe house was far out of town, down a long dirt road that sat on top of a hill. It was hideous and old. The large wooden house shook with the wind. The porch was covered in broken glass from rickety windows, and the wooden floors creaked beneath me with each carefully planned step I managed to take. Ramses informed me that all of my bags and belongings had safely arrived hours before I stepped foot in town. He was quick to leave after I entered the house. How odd. Ramses was so anxious and agitated. Perhaps that was just the kind of man he was. Either way, I brushed it off and toured the property. It was two stories. The wounded soldiers who had been shot or exposed to gas and chemicals 
were all kept upstairs in a large rectangular room. There were twelve men bound in bed, each bed spaced only a few feet apart. The men were pale shades of white, gray, and blue. They coughed and choked on their own saliva as they lay hopelessly in bed. All the hospitals were either full or destroyed, so the safe house was the only place they had. They were tall and thin, bruises covered their bodies, and their stomachs growled dark and unholy tunes of impending death. They appeared to be nearly starved to death. They could barely speak when I asked them when the last time they ate was. I went straight to work. I pulled my jet black hair into a tight bun and put on a pair of medical gloves. I breathed through my mouth as I examined each man, as the stench of the room was almost unendurable. They appeared to be laying in their own filth. It was heartbreaking. After a week, the men started to get better. There was one man in particular who had gotten extremely well. His name was Pietro. Pietro was the only man well enough to get up out of bed and walk around. I'd be lying if I said Pietro wasn't my type. He was beautiful. His skin was soft and pale. His blue eyes pierced like daggers against the soft glow of the moonlight. He was tall, with a sharp chin, small nose, and a strong jawline. Pietro soon began helping me around the house, cooking, cleaning, even giving herbs and medication to the other sick soldiers. He was a lot of help and even better company. I enjoyed every moment I spent with him. He made me laugh all the time. We played games together. We danced and goofed around. But at the end of each day, night came. With the presence of night came sleep. And with sleep came colorful dreams. Pietro was different in my dreams. The veteran's gentle smile had faded away and was plagued by a dark, grimacing glare. His teeth emerged from his gums, revealing white fangs. His eyes were different too. Instead of blue, they were black or red. In each dream, he wrapped me in his arms, his nails dug deep into my back, and he caressed my neck with his lips. He was different. He was cold, dark, and he radiated with a malevolent aura. Let go, I demanded. His flesh was cold, and my whole body seemed to freeze and tense up. I want your pure white light, was always his response. Then, the world would go black, and I would wake up. I would wake up in a cold sweat, scared, confused, anxious, and flustered. Some days... Pietro would already be awake, waiting for me on the other side of the room. Pietro, please! I gasped. Privacy! Let me get dressed! He chuckled. <laughs> yes, ma'am, he muttered. With a flash, 
he was gone. Today was a rather nice day. The smog had cleared and the sun was shining. I asked Pietro if he wanted to go on a walk, but he replied with, I prefer nature in the shadows of the moon. I found this to be odd, but I didn't question it. Later that evening, after washing dishes, I went upstairs to check on the other men. I had been so busy cleaning that I had completely forgotten about them. Now that I think about it, I hadn't heard a single noise come from upstairs all day. I rushed upstairs and stormed into the room. One of the beds was empty. The other ten men were sound asleep, still too injured to move, but what about the bed at the end of the room? I walked over and examined it. I hadn't seen or heard the man get up, so where could he be? That's when I noticed the texture change on the floor. I had no shoes on, so the instant I felt a thick substance grace my foot, I knew something was wrong. A metallic odor hit my nose, and all I could see was red when I looked down at the floor. Is that blood? That's impossible, I thought. Maybe it was just my mind playing tricks on me. Against my better judgment, I bent down and peered under the bed. For a brief moment, I swear my heart stopped beating. My mind blacked out and I lost all sense of logical thinking. Below the bed, I had discovered the lifeless body of the missing soldier. His mouth was agape. His eyes were wide opened, and a terrified expression was plastered all over his face. What about the blood? I looked closer. The blood was pouring out of his neck. Are those bite marks? I gasped. This was not part of the job description. My heart was beating fast. It echoed through my head and shook the entirety of my body. Like bricks, the dreams came flooding back to my mind. The teeth, the neck, the pale and beautiful skin, the icy touch of his flesh. Pietro was a vampire. No, that was impossible. Vampires don't exist. To my surprise, I was overcome with anger and rage. I felt an icy hand touch my shoulder. Pietro! I shrieked. He let out a low, inaudible groan. This is not what it looks like, Rachel. Pietro snapped. He gripped my shoulder and pulled me up to my feet with impossible strength. His hand gripped my shoulder tighter and tighter until his nails broke through the top layer of my skin. Pietro, stop it! I begged. Pietro, stop! You're hurting me! He didn't flinch. I said let go, Pietro! With all the physical strength I could muster, I shoved him off of me. Tell me what this is! I hissed. What are you? He growled 
and there was something different about his voice now. The voice was deeper and more distinct. He sounded like a rabid animal. They did things to us during the war, he explained. His eyes stared down at the pool of blood that surrounded my feet. I was scared to die. After the war ended, everything was left in ruin. I needed help. That's when I found a man, a vampire. He said he could help me. A tear streamed down my cheek as I pieced the puzzle together. You were never sick, I realized. You've been feeding off these men. The Marshall Plan was taking too long, he shouted. The money, the construction, no one was in a healthy condition. I had to feed. They were dying anyway, Rachel. I'm doing them a favor. I ran for the door. I had to escape. I had to get out of here. But I was too slow. Or maybe he was simply too fast. His hand came flying towards me, striking me across the face with so much force it sent me hurtling across the room. I landed on one of the occupied beds. That's when I noticed why the soldiers had been so quiet. They weren't sleeping. They were dead. All of them. They were all dead. Maggots crawled out of the soldier's mouth and dozens of flies infested his ears. I shrieked at the ghastly sight of death and fell off the bed. I collapsed on the old wooden floorboards. But it didn't stop there. They were creaking. No. They were cracking. Like the earth had ripped open its giant geographical mouth, the floor gave out beneath me and I fell through. I felt like I was falling for hours. And then I suddenly crashed down to the bottom floor. My ribs ached and wooden splinters left my arms bleeding like cat scratches. My vision blurred and I lost all sense of sound. The only company I had was the voice in my mind telling me I had to leave. But I couldn't leave. It was nighttime, so Pietro would just follow me. I didn't know what to do. I clawed at the floor, using them to drag myself across their surface and into the living area. Even the simple act of breathing became an uphill struggle. My entire body ached, and I could feel myself slipping out of consciousness. When I woke up, I was bound with rope to a chair in the kitchen. The rope was tightly wound and rubbed against my flesh, creating bright red burn marks. I let out a shriek. I squirmed in the chair and tried to squeeze through the ropes. But it was of no use. Help! I screamed. Desperation could clearly be heard in the echo of my quivering voice. Somebody help me! Something brushed against my ear. No. Not something. Someone. Let me help you. Pietro's deep voice whispered seductively. I can save you. From death. 
You have no idea who you're dealing with. I sobbed. Don't make me hurt you. All he did was laugh at my words. His voice taunted me, mocked me, and dehumanized my very existence. How can you possibly hurt me? I'm a vampire. I'm faster, stronger, smarter, and hungrier than anyone who ever walked the face of this earth. I scoffed. My name is Rachel Bishop of Salem, Massachusetts. I declared through gritted teeth. You will let me go now. And why is that? Because I am not an ordinary nurse, I stated. I am a witch. My power is stronger than your hunger will ever be. Pietro's piercing blue eyes widened in an innocent daze of pure astonishment. The strangest things, he whispered. With his long, sharp nails, he slit the ropes that held me captive like a piece of paper. His strength was undeniable. I watched as the ropes fell upon the floor, but I was too scared to attempt another escape. The vampire circled around me, and I could tell that he was lost in thought. Why are you here? He finally asked. I hesitated before answering. I had to appear strong. I had never faced a vampire, so I had no idea if my defensive magic would even work on him. I had to play it cool. In a situation like this, deception was key. I was hired by the United States to tend to the sick and wounded. The war left Eurasia in chaos You needed the help, and I needed the job. I use potions and magic to save people. I live to continue my family's work of the dark arts. But never in a million years did I ever think that I would meet a vampire. I hoped that he couldn't tell I was anxious. I am honored. Truly, I am very honored. Pietro looked confused. His forehead was stiff, and his eyebrows were slightly higher. His eyes scattered around the room as if he was trying to find something. And here, I was about to suck you dry and leave you here to rot. He admitted with a sinister laugh. (laughs) But now, I think I'm going to marry you. What? I scoffed. Was he being serious? Why would he want to marry me? Better yet, why on earth would I marry him? He was a murderer. And how would that benefit you? 
everlasting life. Immortal love. A whole you can drink buffet. He listed. I could savor you like a snack. Keep you warm and healthy until I needed to turn you. Then, of course, we could take revenge against the world nations who left us here in ruins. We could be gods. Pietro was distracted. Now was my chance. Erisipolis! I chanted. The vampire was now under the mercy of my magic. Pietro's hair burst into bright yellow and orange flames. The flames quickly spread across his entire body, leaving him screaming in sheer agony. That was a mistake. As Pietro fell to the ground, the fire made contact with the wood. Before I even knew what to do, the house was in flames. The fire crackled and snapped as it consumed the old building. The ceiling above was falling in large, burning chunks. First, it was the floorboards. Then it was the beds. I grunted as I dodged falling beds that fell like rain from the floor above. I had screwed myself. My body began to sweat as I listened to Pietro scream. He was still on the ground, rolling around on the fire. I had to think fast. I ran for the door and tried to force it open. But it wouldn't budge. I was trapped. I don't know what happened next. All I remember is waking up in Ramsey's car. What's going on? I asked. What happened? Ramses looked back at me with a sigh before he pulled the car over to the side of the road and came to a stop. The house caught fire, ma'am, he said grimly. You were the only survivor. No, I argued. No, Pietro killed them. He killed all of them. You must have hit your head, Rachel, Ramsey said. There was no one in that house named Pietro. I stared out of the window, trying to fight back tears. We were surrounded by dense, deep woods on either side of the road. I knew I wasn't crazy. I saw what happened. As Ramses started driving again, I noticed something within the shadows of the trees. Piercing, blue eyes. Thanks for listening, and thank you so much to my authors this week, as always. Um, follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. The Facebook group has really grown. So has the Instagram. The Instagram is at over 4,000 people now. The Facebook group is at over 3,000. Um, the Twitter is, I don't, I think at 1,800. I'm not very good about tweeting. At least not from the, uh, show's account. My personal account. I do a lot, but, um, no one wants to see that. (laughs) Um, this week in baking news, I made a pain Bianca, Bianco, 
Bianca, Bianco, can't remember which. It's this very delicious sun-dried tomato, basil, and garlic bread that you like twist into a figure eight. It was amazing, delicious, and my husband asked, said that he couldn't believe that I like went in the kitchen and just made it with my hands, which is like the highest compliment I think you can get as an amateur baker. Um, <laughs> so I think that's all for this week. I hope you're all taking care of yourselves. Um, I should be back soon with some more bonus episodes. Um, yeah, uh, I think that's all for now. Uh, sorry, I'm not feeling very rambly this week. I know some of you enjoy my rambles at the end of the episodes. Um, but maybe next week. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll do a bonus episode where it's more rambly. Um, I do need to finish off my, uh, Unusual Deaths series. Uh, so I'll do that soon so I can get that all tidied up and put away. Alright, anyway, why don't you all go get some sleep? Sweet dreams.